Welcome to the Nutrition on a Mission podcast. I'm Dr. James Gieselman, and my co-host is Coach Drew Sands. And together, we bring some of the leading nutritional and healthcare providers, world-class athletes, and exercise and fitness influencers from across the country who incorporate nutrition in either their practices or day-to-day lives. Our guests share with you their stories of what led them to their passion for nutrition and how you can incorporate this into your life. Drew, how's it going? James, things are going pretty good. I mean, you know, I can't complain about life right now. I'm in a pretty good spot. I, I'm glad. I'm glad. You know, it's it's going well. Um, it's definitely summer's off to a great start. Um, and so here we are, another podcast recording. I'm glad to be here. I want to know if you want to start off with some trivia today. Well, I don't think I really have a choice, but... I, I know you got a question for me, so you might as well ask it. I do have a question. So my question for you is, so if you're ever on Jeopardy, here you go. Here's your full daily double Jeopardy question. Who was the first U.S. president to suffer a heart attack while in office? And I'll even give you a hint. It occurred in 1955. Well, with my vast knowledge of U.S. presidents... You telling me 1955 really only gives me one option. So I'm going to have to go with Dwight D. Eisenhower. And you would be absolutely correct. Thanks for playing along. And for the listeners at home, thanks for playing along as well. I'm sure you all aced the the little quiz. Uh, But that's right. So really, 1955, right? Before that, cardiology and the whole cardiologist movement and the whole heart disease really wasn't that big. And then of course, when a sitting U S president suffers a massive heart attack while in office, right? That really sparks the public's fascination, um, with heart disease. So ultimately that led to, which I'm sure you heard about it in your master's classes. I'm sure you're, I'm sure I talked about it in nutrition. Um, a, a guy by the name of Ansel keys comes along oh, and does man. his famous, yeah, does his famous seven country study, um, which, unfortunately has just stuck around and we still base policy uh, off of his, off of his study back then. But that study has been criticized so much and has been proved like faulty information. Like, Oh, hundred percent. You know, the, the fascination with Ansel Keys and for those of the listeners who, who follow a ketogenic diet, I'm sure they've heard about it. Um, but those who may have haven't, Right. It has absolutely been debunked time and time again, because one, not only did he omit data and any good researcher out there knows that you can't just omit what you don't like. Um, so he omitted data that you know wasn't quite following the narrative. But more importantly, if you look at it from what it is, it's an epidemiological study and it shows associations. So as we know, associations don't always equal causation. So that brings us here today. You know, I'm sure this is something we're going to talk more about with today's guest. So Drew, will you introduce our listeners to Dr. Stephen Hussey? Yeah, I sure will, James. Dr. Stephen Hussey is a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. He attained both his doctorate of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. He is a health coach, speaker, and the author of two books on health, The Health Evolution, why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health and Understanding the Heart, Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease, and Why it Matters. Dr. Hussey, Dr. welcome Dr. Hussey to the podcast. Dr. Hussey guides clients from Thanks around the world Happy back to, to health by using the latest research we are thrilled to have you. attaining strategies. Um, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Play sports, um, read, write, and travel. So for the listeners, we, we've introduced um, a little bit about the, you know, the heart disease concept today. I was a paramedic for three years. Before reading your book, I definitely thought I had a good understanding of the heart in terms of you have a clot, you have a heart attack, you know, I rush you to the hospital, I give you drugs, we open up the the clogged artery. Um, So I just learned a lot as a provider, and I can only imagine that the listeners are going to learn a ton today. So before we jump right into, you know, all my fascinating geek out questions, um, let's just, if you don't mind, share your story with the listeners, uh, if they're not familiar with your work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, my health journey kind of, uh, started just like a lot of people, you know, are passionate about health is, is with my, um, my own issues, right. You know, that kind of spurred me to find more and, and, and fix those issues. But yeah, as a child, I had a lot of 
inflammatory conditions, whether it be asthma or severe allergies, or um, I used to like break out in hives all over my body. I had terrible IBS and all this stuff. And that inflammation ultimately ended up with me being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 9. And so my parents and I were pretty, you know, reliant on the world of Western medicine to, to manage these conditions. And it wasn't until college when I started figuring out that the way I lived my life had a direct impact on my ability to, to manage these things. And uh, I thought that that was interesting that no doctor ever really told me that. They just told me, eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, just take insulin for it, you know, as a type 1. And, um, and so I started looking into health, and I'm happy to say that, you know, all those inflammatory conditions that I had as a kid are now gone, um, aside from the collateral damage that is type 1 diabetes. Um, that's, uh, yeah, that's there to stay until maybe there's some sort of cure on the horizon. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, it's just this super long trial and error process of figuring out what, what health is and what the right environment for the body is. And uh, I've come a long way, learned a lot along the way, but I've been particularly focused on heart disease because as a type one, I'm heavily predisposed to heart, heart disease. Um, and so I've always kind of looked into um, heart disease and found that a lot of what I've learned in formal education is completely wrong. And I wrote a book about it called Understanding the Heart and started talking about it on social media and stuff and people seem to like it. And, and so here we are. Well, excellent. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's great that, you know, we've got you on here and we can, you know, dive into a lot of, you know, you know, what you're talking about, you know, everything you learn being wrong. So that's kind of where I wanted to start. Um, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that, you know, providers are, you know, maybe being taught um, or, you know, just the people at home may have about heart disease and especially with nutrition um, and, and how that's involved? Yeah. Well, I mean, the biggest one out there is that cholesterol causes heart disease or LDL lipoproteins cause heart disease, which is completely wrong in my opinion. Um, and there's really little evidence, um, for that, that theory. There's no incidence in my case where LDL says, I'm going to go attack the lining of that artery just because it's what I do. That's just, that doesn't happen. A lot of things have to happen first. And even if you look at atherosclerosis and you analyze it, it's made up of clotting tissue, not made up of cholesterol. Um, so, so yeah, um, that's a big one. Uh, another big one is animal foods cause heart disease. That's absolutely unfounded. And there's actually a lot of, um, well, the story behind why that happened in the first place is pretty interesting. Um, and it has to do a lot with, um, you know, who, where they follow the money kind of thing. But, um, but there's a lot of evidence, recent evidence that that's not the case at all. Um, but also things like the heart is the main mover of the blood in the body, which is also, um, not true in my opinion, based on a very large body of research that suggests that it's not. Um, and understanding that is very relevant for things like heart failure, because if we're blaming the heart for not moving blood because it's quote unquote failing, um, that in my opinion is the wrong attitude to have because the heart's not responsible for that in the first place. Um, there's, I mean, other myths are that all heart attacks are caused by a clot or a blockage, um, or that stenosis or narrowing of an artery is what causes angina or or heart attacks, um, and I don't believe that that is true uh, in a lot of cases. Um, and then, lastly, uh, other not necessarily a, a myth or whatever, but heart cancer is very rare, and that's very interesting. Um, and the reason that's very important to learn about is because if we can figure out why heart cancer is rare, it helps us figure out why or how to prevent cancer in the rest of the body. Right? If we can mimic what's going on in the heart, then we can prevent cancer elsewhere. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some of the main myths and topics I, I talk about it in my book, but we can go off on the tangents in any one of them if you like. Well, I'm going to recommend we go off on all of them, but I'll start with <laughs> LDL first. Um, cause you know, I teach nutrition here at the university and I have students all the time and I try and break this idea that it's not the animal fat. It's not the saturated fat. Um, you know, I, I try and educate them on the ketogenic diet. We, we briefly touch base on it. Um, but as a provider, I'm taught that if I'm going to look at heart health, right, you need a cholesterol panel. You need to look at HDLs, they have to, you know, and I need to look at LDLs. And then I've started to add in some of the lipoproteins in personally in my practice. Um, but the interesting thing was, you know, when I first got out into practice, uh, talking with another provider, you, you kind of alluded to it, the follow the money. Um, <clears throat> the LDL recommendations today aren't what they always used to be. 
Yeah, very much so. So, yeah, in 1984, this committee got together. Well, I mean, the story goes back further than that, like Ansel Keys in the 1950s and, you know, heart attacks were or heart disease was growing. And before that, like in the 1920s, heart disease was not even much of a thing. It wasn't even like the, um, um, I guess, the College of Cardiology or the American Heart Association weren't really big organizations because they just weren't needed. Um, and then in the after World War II, heart disease started to rise. And Eisenhower had a heart attack while in office, and it was just a big thing. It was this growing fear of it. And, you know, some epidemiological research, which is just associational research, was done um, by a guy named Ansel Keys. And he claimed that the more saturated fat cholesterol you ate, the more heart disease you had. But those types of studies have lots of flaws, and you can't really take your draw concrete conclusions from those types of studies. Yet that's what was done back then. And then in 1984, uh, a committee got together. Um, and decided incorrectly that cholesterol was bad for you, LDL was bad for you. And they originally set the marker for LDL to be 250 or lower. Um, that was okay, right? Um, and over the years, so then these committees put together these educational committees to go teach doctors that cholesterol was bad and how to manage it and what to do. And the pharmaceutical companies were heavily funding these things. Uh, and so over the years, you know, they were teaching doctors that cholesterol was bad and that in statins were how you lower cholesterol and that prescribe more statins. And over the years, they funded the lowering of the recommendations. So it went from 250 LDL went from being uh, 250 recommended to 200 to 150. And now it's 100 or lower. Um, and so what that tells me is we have no idea what cholesterol is supposed to be. Just absolutely no idea. And, and we're a very complex biological ecosystem to to, uh, you know, to say that one or disease process is caused by one biomarker is just absolutely ridiculous in my opinion. Um, but you know, there's no, there's no evidence for it in general. And if you look at the story of it, it just, it doesn't make sense in general. And then, like I was saying before, if you look at, if you analyze atherosclerosis, um, there's very little cholesterol in it. There is some, um, but that's just because when a clot forms, which is what atherosclerosis is, it's clotting tissue. Um, that when a clot forms, some cholesterol is in the area, just happens to end up in the clot, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes there's higher levels of um, LP little a present, but that's because it's going to, you know, stop the clot from breaking down. Because if your body's trying to make a clot, it wants it to be there for a reason. Um, but, um, but yeah, so then if you look at like associational studies, there's other associational studies, which again, you can't really draw concrete conclusions from, but there are other associational studies that show that uh, the higher cholesterol is over people's lifetime, the less heart disease they have, the less cancer they have, um, the higher cognitive abilities they have, the less rates of infection, less rates of death from anything. Um, so it's just like, which, which associational studies do we believe? You know, it's, it, that's just the nature of those studies. It just shows that you can't draw those concrete conclusions. Um, and there's other associational studies that show that the, um, the levels of LDL, the levels of total cholesterol associated with the lowest all-cause mortality from anything are between 200 and 250, which right now the recommendation for total cholesterol is 200 or lower, which doesn't reflect that research, so to speak. And then the the levels of LDL associated with the, um, the lowest all-cause mortality from anything are between 100 and 150, which they recommend that it be. I mean, there's some cardiologists that say, I want it lower than 70. And if you look at, in those studies, looking at that, lower than 70 was associated with the highest all-cause mortality. So- it's obviously, I mean, it's obvious to me that it's driven by the pharmaceutical companies want to, you know, prescribe statins and statin drugs are, you know, either the first or second uh, um, highest prescribed drugs in the United States. Uh, it's one and two, it goes back and forth between pain meds and, and statins. Um, and so, so yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of flaws in the whole theory. If you look at the studies on statins that claim that lowering LDL um, is better for heart disease. They mess with statistics like crazy. Um, and there's, I think I can't remember the exact statistics in my book, but it's like something like, you know, 120 people would have to take statins for five years to save one life or something like that. Um, and we also know that there's other pleiotropic effects, you know, these anti-inflammatory effects of statins, which I would much rather get anti-inflammatory effects other ways than taking a drug that inhibits the production of cholesterol because cholesterol is essential. So, um, so yeah, this whole theory doesn't make sense. It's, it's largely driven by funding and, um, and 
and a, and a flawed theory, really. Um, and the biggest issue with it is, is that it's a huge distraction from people asking what are the actual causes of heart disease, because everybody just thinks it's cholesterol and you treat it one way and that's what everybody's told. Um, and nobody asks, well, what does cause it really? Uh, and that's something that I've tried to investigate and, and have my ideas on. So that's going to lead me into, you know, asking that question, you know, what is causing heart disease, you know, in your expert opinion, what would you found? Well, yeah. And it depends on which type of heart disease you're talking about. Are we talking about heart failure, talking about myocardial infarction, cardiac arrest, or atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. Um, and so since, you know, cholesterol is obviously centered around this atherosclerosis, you know, we'll talk about what causes that. And then we should also talk about, does that actually even cause heart attacks, um, atherosclerosis of the coronary arteries. Um, and so anyways, uh, like I mentioned before, atherosclerotic tissue is, is clotting tissue. So it happens when the lining of the artery gets damaged. Um, and, and normal, like damage to the artery is supposed to happen. I mean, not supposed to happen, but it's, it's almost like normal. It's like normal wear and tear, just like in your car. It's supposed to happen. You got to get your oil change. You got to do repairs on the car, right? Um, that's just how it goes. Um, and so when the amount of damage that happens is more than the amount of repair that can happen, then the artery gets really inflamed and damaged. And if, if it doesn't repair itself in some way, then it could rupture, which is bleeding, which is a much bigger problem than atherosclerosis in the short term. Um, so it's just kind of like if you cut your skin and you start bleeding, your body forms a scab, right? It clots. Uh, it's the same kind of thing that happens on the lining of the artery, more or less. So if we get this inflammation, the body forms a clot, and that can happen many times. It can like, clot on top of clot on top of clot. Um, and that's when we get this narrowing or stenosis of an artery. And, you know, it is said that the more inflamed, more vulnerable, more soft plaques are more likely to rupture. And when that rupture happens, a clot forms. However, there's lots of evidence that most of the time, if a plaque ruptures, it does not result in a heart attack. Uh, there's a there's a really good paper out there called the myth of the vulnerable pla vulnerable plaque, um, showing that that's just not necessarily the case. Um, and then if that atherosclerosis is there long enough, the body will calcify it, um, harden it. It's it's saying, okay, this is not tissue that we want here. We want to make it more stable. We're going to calcify it. We deposit calcium. And that's why people can get calcium scans, CAT CAC scans, and they can measure the amount of calcified plaque in their arteries. Um, and so. The question is, what causes that inflammation? What causes that damage in the first place? And that is many, many different things. Okay, it could be psychological stress, and everything, everything I list, uh, I'm going to list here has a lot of evidence behind it, showing that it it uh, leads to the inflammation and oxidative stress that cause atherosclerosis. Uh, so it could be heavy metal exposure. It could be endotoxemia, which is when certain bacteria from poor gut health or poor dental health. Uh, leak into the bloodstream and they shouldn't be there. Um, it could be, um, uh, I mentioned psychological stress, it could be plastics. Um, you know, BPA has been shown to, to cause this process. Um, it could be um, seed oils. Uh, they are um, very inflammatory, uh, but it's inflammatory diet in general, herbicides and pesticides, air pollution, uh, all these different things, all these things that can cause, I'd say, insult to the lining of the artery. Um, it's just creating this state of inflammation and oxidative stress, which is why markers of inflammation are much more telling when it comes to whether or not you're going to have heart disease or not. Um, but the other thing is, is that the thing that seems to, um, you know, be the straw that broke the camel's back is insulin resistance because insulin is the hormone that signals for growth and repair. Um, and so if you're getting, if you're trying to repair this damage, this, this quote unquote normal damage uh, that can happen, but can be excessive at times, um, happening to the lining of the artery and you don't have insulin signaling because you're insulin resistant, then that repair doesn't happen as well. And it's more likely that we develop atherosclerosis, which is why diabetes, which is insulin resistance is so heavily associated with, um, atherosclerosis. Um, so it's these, it's all these key pieces. It's lots of different things. Um, and then people will talk about, um, you know, yeah, maybe cholesterol or LDL doesn't cause heart disease, but it's the oxidized cholesterol or it's the small dense particles or, um, the LP little a and all those different things. Um, and so, uh, or people talk about APOB versus APOA and those types of, um, those particles and those things, 
they can be, they can contribute to the problem, but those things only happen in a state of inflammation and oxidative stress. So it's not those things that are driving the disease. It's just that we're seeing those oxidized LDLs and small dense particles at the same time as atherosclerosis because inflammation and oxidative stress is calling up, causing all of those things, right? So they, they can be indicative of how inflamed and how damaged our arteries, but those things are never directly causing the disease um, or solely causing the disease either. Um, and so it's much more pertinent, I think, to address the causes of inflammation that someone may have rather than um, do all this testing and treat their blood work. You know, um, it's look at someone's whole lifestyle and all the inflammatory things that could be contributing uh, and assess those things. And there's tons of evidence for this. So it's really frustrates me a lot of time when everybody just wants to talk about LDL, uh, the conversation about heart disease, just all LDL or, or overanalyzing LDL or all the different particle sizes and particle numbers and all stuff. And it's like, that's all great and everything. And it's interesting and we should know about it. However, there's way more to the story. And we, if we don't start talking about that, we're never going to solve the issue. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard, well, if you just lower your cholesterol intake, I mean, that is one thing I try and, and I'm, I'm sure Drew remembers that from class, like your dietary cholesterol has very little impact because when people start to understand that their body is making cholesterol and then for people to fully understand whenever I talk to patients or talk to students that your body needs cholesterol, like it's actually an important, right? It's not just magically there. It's, it's not just like the appendix of biomarkers. <laughs> There's a function for it. Um, that, that always fascinates me. So kind of back to the testing though, you know, as a provider, I would definitely say, yes, we need to look at the whole individual and address the inflammation. But also I understand that there's too many providers out there who do need biomarkers, do need to order labs. Like what am I looking for on labs that may be a sign that, all right, we've really gone too far. And if we don't address it now, mm-hmm. um, so in my book, I talk about like these three imbalances that drive all heart disease, I think, or all disease in general, really. Um, and one of them is is poor mitochondrial health um, slash metabolic health, because mitochondria are what, you know, basically what our metabolism is. Um, and so those can be, I mean, poor metabolic health could start with leptin resistance. Um, that's kind of the first sign. So testing leptin could be super important. And then that f- followed pretty quickly by insulin resistance. Um, which is the next step. And so these are things that you could test for before, before someone has any symptoms of metabolic dysfunction or diabetes. You could be testing for these. They could show up 10 years before someone ever has diagnosable metabolic conditions, right? Um, and so because usually they're looking at their blood sugar, their A1C, and they're like, oh, everything's fine. It's just like, well, what if the insulin is super high? Like you're using tons of insulin to keep that blood sugar normal, keep that A1C normal. And that's not normal to do that, right? So a test for fasting insulin um, for metabolic health is really important. And then the trig to HDL ratio. So if I am looking at a lipid panel, I want that trig to HDL ratio to be 1.5 or lower. That's, uh, one of the best indicators of, of, um, better metabolic health, uh, which means insulin sensitivity, which means the ability to repair arteries when damage happens. Right. Um, and then even further, you know, earlier on could be, could be leptin resistance. So that's kind of the metabolic health aspect of what you want to look for in blood work, what you could order. And then the inflammation and oxidative stress is the second imbalance. And so that one is super important and you could really get into the weeds testing for inflammation. Uh, you could, or, or oxidative stress, you could, you could be testing all kinds of damage to lipid particles and DNA and all kinds of things, but really like kind of a baseline, what I test for is just like a high sensitivity C-reactive protein and then um, and a GGT, just liver enzyme GGT, which is a good measure of how um, how much oxidative stress is your liver dealing with? Um, and then the last one, which we haven't touched on quite yet is, is, uh, heart rate variability, um, and just measuring the stress response in your autonomic nervous system. That is an extremely important biomarker, probably the most important one, in my opinion, uh, when it comes to, um, heart disease risk. Uh, and, uh, and that's just not often talked about, especially in medical settings. I know a lot more people, uh, who are not practitioners, just general people who measure heart rate variability rather than, than practitioners. But, um, and that can be measured b- via various devices, um, like the Aura Ring or Elite HRV, or just there's lots of different ones. Apple Watches and Fitbits will do it and you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, but those are 
like that's pretty much most basic I could get right there. You could go, like I said, way farther into things, but to me, I'm always assessing how much is this going to cost a client or patient um, versus I'd rather than put the money into changing lifestyle stuff or better food or whatever. Um, and so there's always that kind of that, but if they got the money and they want to test more, we could go more, but that like that right there is it's, it's useful because I don't even really need testing. Um, I could just say, okay, go do these things, but it's very motivational for the patient to see, Hey, this is, this is off and then test it again later. And they see, okay. And they get the reward. So they keep doing the behavior, you know, so that that's one really good use of testing. Um, but that's kind of the baseline testing so, I could do. What about the calcium? Cause I know calcium, I mean, I feel like it's been recent, but that seems to be like a big driver, I guess, within the field of healthcare, right? Looking mm -hmm. at calcium scores. Um, and my sister just graduated from PA school out in West Virginia. And when she was on her rotation, she had a, she was an ortho and she had an orthopedic surgeon who was talking to a cardiologist and they were just adamant not to take um, calcium supplements because according to the mm -hmm. cardiologist, the calcium is going to deposit in your lining of your arteries way before it ever deposits in your bone. And so she goes, you're a nutrition guy. Like what is that true? And I said, well, I have never heard of the calcium pill depositing into the lining of the artery first. And I said, I'm sure your cardiologist is talking about calcium scores, but I mean, is that a marker that we even need to look at the calcium? Uh, so you're talking about just like, just like, um, like serum calcium or like, uh, or, um, or like CAC no, so scores. He was, talk he was talking about the, the calcium CT yeah. score. Yeah. So here's the thing. I, I don't understand. I mean, I guess I understand the fascination with the test because it's this kind of new test that's gotten popular. And every time someone gets a test, it's, it's profitable. You know, I mean, it's not the most expensive test, but it is something that um, people can test. And to me, you know, we've always been told that these soft plaques are more dangerous. And so I don't quite understand why we think that measuring the hard calcified plaques is going to be indicative. I mean, it may be indicative of how you how you've been doing, how long have you had this atherosclerosis there? How long has this been an issue? Um, but it's measuring stable plaque. It can't, like the CAC score can't measure the vulnerable plaque, so to speak. But even then, like I said, there's that very good art research article showing that the, even the vulnerable plaque doesn't cause things you don't, there are the things you don't want to have, but it doesn't even necessarily cause heart attacks most of the time when, when things rupture. So yeah. And then the whole, like, it's, it's the, the idea that calcium just gets deposited in an artery for no reason. It's just, it doesn't make sense. Same as cholesterol going in there. It doesn't make sense. You know, there has to be pathology first, right? And so they're worried about the calcium um, and they're not worried about the pathology. It's like what pathology has to happen. And that is the inflammation, oxidative stress. And then even then the atherosclerosis has to be there long enough that the body decides, well, let's just calcify this because it's not going away, right? Um and then um, the other aspect of this is that, and this is the irony of me of, of plant-based diets, is that um, they're saying that they reverse heart disease and everything. However, they're incredibly lacking in vitamin K2, which is what is responsible for taking minerals and depositing them in bones. And people say, oh, there's plenty of vitamin K in a plant-based diet. It's like, well, in K1, you can get lots of that. Or if you have fermented soy, but if you want to eat fermented soy every day, that's that's up to you. But um but the, the animal foods are where the vitamin K2 is and that, and there's direct evidence and lots of studies showing that that prevents arterial calcification because it's, it's helping shuttle those minerals where they need to go. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then there's, there's way more than just biochemistry and nutrition when it comes to preventing these things. Uh, and that's, you know, the water and stuff we'll talk about later. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's my take on that. So, and there's actually a recent study that came out this year. Um, that shows that um, CAC scores are not that predictive of events, um, but also that if you have a zero CAC score, what this is just associational studies, but then what your cholesterol is has no, it doesn't matter whatsoever, you know? So it's just these different things. Like if you have this, then this doesn't matter and blah, blah, blah. But it's just interesting that people are starting to look at that. And it's not showing, it's not ending up to be as predictive or as assessment, assessing of a risk as, as we were once thought. So I, you know, I've heard you allude to oxidative stress a few times, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
throughout um, explaining some of this, could you explain to the listeners, you know, what oxidative stress is and, mm-hmm. and kind of break that down and, you know, what may cause it, um, kind of yeah. what it's doing. So, um, again, we we're told like that there's waste products when your body makes energy, we're told that there's waste products and I don't think there's any sense. There's no such thing as a waste product, but there is, you can think about it kind of like exhaust, um, you know, but I don't even like saying that because that is something that would be wasteful or, or harmful or something like that. And I don't think that these oxidative stress molecules are harmful, but they're kind of like at the end process of your body making energy, which is ATP, um, then it, it does make some what are called free radicals. And these are just molecules that end up with an unpaired electron and they really, really want to be paired. And so when they're not paired, they don't have a paired electron they're, they're kind of unstable. I, like to my clients, I come to the Looney Tunes, Tasmanian devil. They're kind of going around like crazy looking for a pair and they'll steal it from anywhere. Okay. And that is including healthy tissue, um, or it could damage cholesterol molecules. It could damage anything in the body by stealing electrons, um, from it to be paired. And so by the very process of, of attaining electron and being paired, it makes another free radical because it just stole electron from somebody else. Right. So there's kind of these, um, uh, this this kind of uh, reactive state. And so usually our body would make antioxidants um, to to take care of these free radicals, right? And that's kind of this normal balance. Your body makes glutathione and superoxide dismutase and things like that, your cells do, um, so that when those free radicals are produced, um, which those free radicals are signaling molecules, they do have a role. They're not like they're just these things that the body makes for no reason. They, they do signal to the body um, uh, satiety and, and things like that. Um, but if they get to be too much because we are doing things that uh, increase the production of them, like, you know, processed food diets, um, uh, among other things, um, then they, they can kind of overwhelm that antioxidant system. And then people will say, yeah, we can take antioxidants. We can eat antioxidant rich diet. And the jury's out for me on that. Um, you know, I, I, I have a lot of studies I talk about in my book that, show that um, eating more of those things or taking different supplements that are quote unquote antioxidants have no effect on oxidative stress. Um, doesn't mean they're harmful. I just, I, I, the jury's out about that, but the, the way to, to decrease your oxidative stress is um, decrease the amount of free radicals that are being made and then increase your body's production of antioxidants and glutathione and things like that. Um, that's, that's how we do that. And so, so this issue with oxidative stress, and there are other things that you can get into the body like different toxins and things that can act like um, free radicals. And I mentioned some of those earlier, like endotoxins and free rat or um, uh, heavy metals, uh, just things like that, plastics, uh, those types of things. They can act, they can be these damaging things too, because they can, they can steal electrons as well. So, so that's the idea of this oxidative stress. And we can measure that through um, damage to DNA particles. We can measure it to damage to fatty acids in the body. We can measure it, uh, through liver enzymes, uh, things like that can tell us the state of how much, how many free radicals is their body having to deal with. So kind of diving back into the clot, right? So something I found fascinating from your book and you cited a bunch of references. So my mom had had heart surgery, you know, she had had a stent put in. Um, and then a few months later, the stent, um, clotted off. Again, and so, you know, thinking that mindset, thinking the paramedic, thinking the, all the healthcare that I had, so the arteries clogged, you have something plugging it up and now you need to go in for a bypass. And that's, you know, that's typically the next step in those surgeries. And so finding it from your book that the body within, you know, four days in some studies that if your uh, artery is clogged by more than 70%, you're making collaterals, like you're supplying and feeding the area to the heart, plenty of blood. So what's the idea behind, you know, that, like, what's, how do we get away from thinking it's just a clot? There's only one, you know, one way to travel. There's no other ways. I mean, how do we explain that to people listening? So, yeah, so here's the deal. This was one of the most fascinating things that I found. Um, and, uh, and I had to d- dig a little bit, but, um, yeah, so this, there's this idea that, that all heart attacks are caused by blockages and that's not true, but it can happen, right? Clots do form. 
But at this point, I'm pretty certain, I'm pretty confident in saying that um, all heart attacks that happen with a blockage are an acute clot formation. They are not a gradual narrowing of an artery. Okay, so clotting can happen and they can cause this stenosis, this atherosclerosis, and that can narrow over time because clot on top of clot on top of clot can form. Um, and that narrowing can happen, but there, there's case studies of, of, uh, men who have like a quote unquote 90% blockage of an artery or narrowing artery and running a marathon. So clearly their heart is getting blood from somewhere. And so there's this guy named Giorgio Baraldi, who's a researcher and he's since passed, but, um, who kind of dedicated his career to this. And he did a lot of research where he, um, he made these kind of plastic casts of, of the heart arterial system. Like you've seen these things in like the body world exhibits and the, and the animal inside out exhibits, you know, they, where they cast the arterial system and there's this cool, you know, depiction of a fish, just the arteries or whatever. Um, he invented that technique. And, uh, and so he started doing this with hearts of people who died of heart attacks, people who didn't die of heart attacks and all this different stuff. And he found a lot of interesting things. Uh, one thing he found is that people who died of heart attacks, the quote unquote stenosis or blockage was nowhere near where the heart tissue death happened. Um, and other things he found was that anywhere there was a 70% or more stenosis of an artery, the body had built a network of collaterals around it that totally bypassed it um, altogether. And that was in 100% of cases because I've had cardiologists tell me, well, some people have collaterals, some people don't. And in his studies, which he did a lot of them and over thousands of hearts, and um, it was in every single case where there was a 72 or more uh, stenosis. And so, and then like you mentioned, I've, I've found studies that show that these things, at least in pigs and dogs, can form very quickly, at least in coronary arteries. Um, you know, some one study was within seven days, they gradually created a closure of an artery over seven days and the body created new arteries around it and then one within four days. Um, so very quickly this, this can happen. And so this tells me, this explains to me why when you look at the research on our elective stent placements, so stents that are placed uh, electively, not in an emergency situation, like they go in to do a heart cath and they say, oh, they got stenosis here, we're going to place a stent just for preventative measures, those types of things. And bypass surgeries, if you look at those studies that look at outcomes from those, those things do not prevent future heart attacks. Um, look at studies of people who didn't have them versus who did, and there's no difference uh, between how many you know events and how much heart disease is seen. And that's because the body has already taken care of it. So if I go in there and I open up this stenosis with a stent or I bypass the stenosis or whatever, it doesn't matter because the collaterals are already there. And you don't see these collaterals because they're so small, but there's just so many of them, but you don't necessarily see them on an angiogram uh, because they are so small. Um, and there's this really interesting video online of some guy putting in a contrast in, and, and the, the contrast is up here and you can't even see it get to the stenosis yet, but then the contrast shows up on the other side already, you know, because the collaterals are so vast and you don't, you don't see where it's going because like I said, the collaterals are so thin, but it, it looks to me like they're always there. Um, and so people will always say, well, why are, why are we placing stints? Why is all stuff? And I said, well, because when you place a stint, the hospital makes $25,000, you know, just like that. That's why. Um, and who knows how much the cardiologist makes from that? I, I don't know, but that's just, it's not, I'm not saying people are evil. I'm just saying that that has an effect that um, affects your decision-making on what you're going to recommend. But the research shows that they don't prevent issues. And so, um, Heart attacks do happen when an acute clot forms, when when um, a clot forms that's big enough to entirely block an artery. And yes, if we have narrowing of an artery somewhere, um, that makes it more likely that a, a clot that's not that big will, will block something off. So these types of things do happen. Um, but trying to go in and treat the area of stenosis is not working. Um, and that research shows that over and over and over again um, since the 70s when they first started doing bypasses and stuff. It's just it's never been effective. Um, and so, and when they put a, a vein in there, it, it promptly develops atherosclerosis, which is the only time veins develop atherosclerosis. Um, so yeah. Um, and again, focusing on that is, is distracting us from the actual causes of these things, which is clotting, which is, you know, when, well, the, the things that cause clotting are the inflammation and oxidative stress, but also stagnant blood. Uh, which is a huge issue. People are not in the right environments for creating blood flow. And we think the heart's responsible for that when it's not. 
And so um, we've kind of lost touch with actually what keeps fluid moving in the body. Uh, and that, I mean, you can compare it to like a puddle, a puddle, you know, it starts to get bacteria, starts to get debris, you start to get dirty, whatever it's stagnant water, whereas a river is always staying clean. It looks beautiful, you know, because flow is very, very important. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's the story of, of collaterals. So could you maybe explain what, you know, people need to be doing to prevent heart attacks, you know, what, maybe what diets, what exercise, you know, what needs to be done to prevent this? What, what needs to be done to put us in the right environment? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a big topic and, um, and, and unfortunately, you know, the conversation about most disease and health in general is, is very focused on diet and exercise, just like you mentioned, you know, and to me, those, those things are important. You want to move your body. You want to eat a diet that's not harming you. Um, but they're like, if I have a list of like the top things that people could do, those are kind of midway down on the list, those two things. Um, and, and so, um, I've, I've gotten really into the biophysics of the body because we are kind of inundated with biochemistry because of the nutrition world and because of the pharmaceutical world that told us a lot about biochemistry. But I have learned that the biochemistry does not function or it is driven by the biophysics, by the signals that your body gets right from, from the outside. And this is, I'm talking about your light environment. I'm talking about your electromagnetic field environment. I'm talking about your circadian rhythm. Uh, I'm talking about your contact with the earth. So all these things are, I think almost more important and I could take all the supplements in the world, but if my body is not getting signaled on when to use those biochemically from my light environment and other things, then, you know, we're not using them effectively. And so, and then we haven't even talked about like, you know, the emotional part of this and, and the, how the heart is so we're connected to us emotionally and heart rate variability and all that kind of stuff. But, um, just kind of a hit list, I guess, of, of, well, I'll just kind of summarize. So you, if you want to prevent heart disease, you want to decrease inflammation and oxidative stress. And so that's avoiding all the toxins, eating an anti-inflammatory diet, um, which in my opinion is very high in animal foods um, and, and those types of things that we've kind of already talked about. You want to increase flow in the body. You want fluids to move. Um, and so that is um, plenty of sunlight exposure. That is putting your feet directly on the earth. Uh, and we can talk about how that, that makes things move if you want to. Um, but movement is incredibly important, not just for blood, but for lymphatic fluid and cerebrospinal fluid and all these different things uh, where there's there's no pump in those systems, so they have to move somehow. Um, so that kind of stuff. Um, and then balancing your autonomic nervous system is is huge. And, and so uh, this is something where, where chiropractic is, is incredibly useful for. Um, there's plenty of evidence for that, um, but there's lots of different things. It could be unresolved past trauma. It could be toxic relationships. It could be a sense of feeling out of control. It could be, again, imbalance in the circadian rhythm, um, all these different things that can contribute to this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. And there's plenty of uh, studies that show that heart rate variability, which is the best measure of balance in the autonomic nervous system that we have, is a much better indicator of um, heart disease risk than, than anything else, than inflammation, than LDL especially. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so those are the things. And, and, and there's lots of different strategies and things that we could go down rabbit holes on. Um, but generally, that's what people want to pay attention to. Increase flow, decrease inflammation, metabolic health, autonomic nervous system. Uh, those things are, are, are super important. So sticking with flow, something I read in your book, and you know, as a provider, I don't know if I just missed this day in class. I'm assuming it was never mentioned uh, because I feel like school left out a lot of stuff for me. Um, but you talk about fourth phase water flow um, and specifically how, you know, because and I'm guilty of teaching the heart is a pump. That's how we get blood around. Can you just briefly touch base on the concept of fourth phase flow and how that really might be the driving force for the heart? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So just to kind of briefly introduce this and then go into the specifics water so we're, we're all told we're made up of water right 70 80 90 percent people say i'll throw these numbers around but we're a large percentage water 
However, I don't slosh around like a waterbed, right? I'm not liquid water. There's some liquid water in me, in my blood and, and lymphatic fluid and cerebral spinal fluid and things like that. But I am in a gel state. I am like jello because if I take the tissue of my forearm and I wiggle it around, it gives like jello does, but it goes right back. So most of the water in my body is in a gel state. And so this is termed fourth phase water. So there's solid liquid gas. And we now know that water has unique properties that given the right environment, uh, it will structure itself, so to speak, into a more gel-like state. Um, and the criteria for that to happen are you need water. You need a water-loving surface, which all biological surfaces are water loving and you need radiant energy. Um, so when I say radiant energy, this is what I'm talking about. The sun, the earth, these are the, I guess, the original sources of radiant energy, but there's other sources today. And so when those happen, when those come together and you get water next to a biological surface, um, water, you know, is, is, um, H2O, right? Uh, there's, uh, uh one oxygen, two hydrogens. And when this happens, water kind of cleaves off one of the hydrogens and it kind of puts it over here and that's a proton there's an h plus over here and then um, you're left with oxygen and hydrogens and they team up with other oxygens and hydrogens they make this lattice-like structure that forms or structures itself onto that biological surface and it happens in layers so i, I picture like kind of like fence panels that just laying on top of each other kind of makes this honeycomb looking shape and it's kind of formed um and it's and when you look at it macroscopically it's more like a gel and so the art lining of the artery is a biological surface and the water or the blood is about half water, right? And so the water and the blood with sufficient energy will structure itself onto the lining of the artery. And the most, there's two really interesting things about this. One is that one nickname for fourth phase water. And this is all, if people want to go research this, is the lab of Gerald Pollack and Albert St. Georgie and Gilbert Lang were researchers. And there's lots of people who've researched water, but Gerald Pollack has a few books on, on structure of water um, coming out of his lab. That's, that's fascinating. But um, one nickname for fourth phase water is exclusion zone water. And that's because the way that it structures itself, it excludes things that are not it. Okay, so nothing can really penetrate it except small hydrated ions um, like, um, like potassium um, and um, and uh, chloride and things like that. Those smaller hydrated ions, they can get through, but nothing else can. Um, so if we have intact, healthy fourth phase water, which has been proven to be on the lining of the artery, then nothing can penetrate it, including an LDL molecule or an HDL molecule or a red blood cell or bacteria. Those are way too big. But even the smallest protein in the blood, albumin, can't penetrate it. Um, and so we have to make sure our fourth phase water is healthy so that we can protect the lining of the arteries. And there are plenty of studies that show that if we increase energy to the body, it forms more structured water uh, and it protects the lining of the arteries. The second interesting thing is, is that because of the way um, fourth phase water forms, because the oxygen is so electronegative and it's cleaved off one of the hydrogens, because, you know, water is this polar molecule, this balanced molecule, but if you cleave off a hydrogen, then the oxygen hydrogen left become more electronegative. And so fourth phase water itself is a very electronegative space. And then all the protons, the extra hydrogens that are cleaved off, now we've got them next to each other, right? And what happens when you get a positive and negative next to each other? Everybody's looked at a battery. They put a battery in something before, right? You put the positive one way, you put the negative the other way. It creates a battery, right? It creates energy. And that's exactly what happens. And, and Gerald Pollack has shown in his lab that when you do this, um, you create flow, okay? And, and as long as you put radiant energy into the system, flow happens in the same direction once it starts, um, you know, forever, uh, as long as you're putting radiant energy into the system. So here we have this substance, water, in our arteries already that can protect the lining of the artery and create blood flow as long as we make it healthy and intact. Um, and so people may be saying, oh, maybe there's a lot of skepticism, but the thing that drives it home for me is that the energy or the wavelength of light that is most absorbed by water is infrared which is highest at sunrise and sunset. But you can get infrared saunas and infrared lamps and things like that. And at the 3000 nanometer wave, wavelength, it's the most absorbed by water. And so there, when you look at the studies on people with heart failure, so people's hearts who aren't pumping like they're supposed to, and, um, and you could put them in an infrared sauna for however many weeks, how many times a week or whatever, their heart failure drastically improves. And it is 
I, there's, there's more literature than I could cite in my book. It would just get redundant on this, you know? Um, and so I don't understand why there's not an inference on every single cardiac rehab center in the, in the world, but there should be because, or we, they should all be watching the sunrise and sunset and getting sunlight. But, um, when you do that, like literally the, you know, cause cardiomyopathy, like in, in heart failure, the heart gets bigger, their hearts go back to normal size. Um, their ejection fraction drastically increased, goes back to normal. Um, their blood pressure goes down, um, all these different things, their swelling goes down, the edema they find. And so when you just, when you just put them in a sauna, you put them in infrared light. And so that's why I have become a huge proponent of, um, you know, nutrients are not just biochemicals and food. Nutrients are your entire environment. Light is a nutrient. Um, sound is a nutrient. Um, the connection with the earth is a nutrient. All these things are, are ways that our body gets information on how to function. And so that's what drives it home for me is that when you, you know, we know that infrared light's the most absorbed by water. When we put someone in infrared light, it creates blood flow, the heart, because, because heart failure is basically when the heart's having to do more pumping than it's supposed to, and it starts to get stretched out and tired and weak. Um, and so we increase these mechanisms of peripheral flow that should be happening as the main way that fluid flows. Um, then the heart says, oh, we, we finally can take a rest and it goes back to normal in lots of cases. Um, I've, I've worked with clients, um, who, uh, you know, have had heart failure and, um, I've had, I've had people's injection fractions go up 50% and their heart decrease and go back to normal size just by telling them to go put, get in a sauna, you know, um, which is just general health advice. That's all you have to give them, you know, and it's just, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and, but it's, it, to me, it, it, it's a testament to how we've almost ignored the biophysics side of things and how important it is, um. But, uh, but yeah, but, and there's, there's lots more to water in the body too, because all of our cells are filled. The cytoplasm is in a gel state. It's fourth phase water. Um, and, and lots of different researchers like James Clegg and Maywan Ho and Gilbert Lang have all established this. Um, and if, if you remember that, uh, the exclusion zone was one of the names because it excludes different minerals or hydrated ionic minerals that aren't it. And so the cutoff point between what minerals can go into the water and what minerals can go out of the water is, is uh, sodium potassium, which is an interesting thing. So those, for those people familiar with studying the physiology, that's an interesting thing to note because we know that sodium is concentrated outside the cell and potassium is concentrated inside the cell. And why is that? Um, so just, you know, get people's gears turning a little bit. There's a whole other side of, of water and cellular function as well. It's not just this, these flow mechanisms. Well, we are getting close to the end and I promised you that I would ask you an athletic question beforehand. So that's where I'm going to switch gears to and, you know, ask my athletic question. What, what should athletes uh, be doing, which, you know, what heart diseases are most common among athletes? What should athletes be doing, not doing to really protect themselves from heart disease and make sure that their performance is top tier? Yeah. Electrolytes, for sure. Um, you know, people who are more active, especially top tier athletes, you're sweating a lot, you're losing minerals. And in my opinion, one of the main uh, issues with, with um, some of the cardiac arrests we see in athletes is, is depleted minerals, especially potassium. Um, but that's one thing that you just know right off the bat, you know, replace your minerals. And then um, I take a lot of heat for this but I am not a fan of endurance cardiovascular exercise. I don't think it should be called cardio. I don't think it's healthy for your heart. Now, if you have some reason to do it, like it's mental health or it's your job, like it's your career or something, or, or you just get maybe a social aspect and you want to do it, that's fine. But I don't think that any endurance type cardio exercise of more than three to four miles is uh, necessary for health. Um, and I, I do some, you know, I ride my bike and stuff, but, um, but overdoing endurance exercise, I think, is not a path to health. It's not going to help us get any healthier. So you don't need to do more of it. And, and people, people yell at me for that. But the reason being is that if you look at the, um, the studies on, on what endurance type exercise, uh, like, like long-term aerobic exercise does, um, there's evidence that there's, that people have more atherosclerosis, um, more inflammation, more risk, uh, more, uh, scarring of heart tissue, um, more risk of developing heart failure, lots of different things. Um, and so the average person who's just looking to get healthy should heart healthy specifically should be more focused on maintaining their strength 
Um, that is the number one indicator of longevity is how strong you are and maintaining your muscle mass as you age. Um, and then maintaining your, your flexibility, um, because, um, the connective tissue fascia in us is how the body communicates. Um, and if it's all bound up in places, then, then it can't communicate as well. Um, but, and then doing small amounts of aerobic type exercise is, is fine, but definitely not overdoing it. Um, and, uh, and so if I'm talking about someone who's, who's, uh, really active, know that that activity is a hormetic stress. It, it is a good thing in that it creates a, a stress and the body responds to the stress and has a net positive. However, you can overdo that hormetic stress. Um, and so if you're a type of person that, that overdoes it, um, because of your career or because of whatever, um, like maybe you're a high level athlete, that's what you do. Um, make sure that you're also doing things that decrease the inflammation and oxidative stress that that hormetic stress causes, which we talked about, you know, the toxin exposures, the diet, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really, really important. Um, and then also, um, flow, you know, make sure things are flowing, make sure, because the flow is not just for delivering of nutrients through blood. It's also through, uh, it's also the detoxification process. If things aren't flowing, things aren't getting pushed out. Um, just, you know, wear and tear byproducts and cellular debris and things like that. So again, that's, that's light exposure. That's, uh, put your feet directly on the earth. Um, those types of things. In all of your research, have you found evidence that, you know, atherosclerosis, the clotting, all that stuff, like if the damage has already been done and the listeners and even the practitioners put into place, like what you're saying, like getting more light exposure, you know, following the flow, things like that. Is there evidence that actually shows we can reverse what's going on? I'm, I'm going to assume yes, based on one of your recent uh, Instagram posts. Not Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. Um, I, I know we're getting toward the end. This may be a bigger topic, but yeah. So I had a heart catheterization um, and, uh, and they blocked or they, they sealed up the place when they went to the femoral artery, they sealed up the place mm-hmm. with an angio seal device, uh, which allows, the reason they do that is because it allows it to heal faster so that I don't have to lay on my back for 72 hours or whatever it is. I can lay there for 12 hours and then I can, I can sit up without having to bust or whatever. So anyways, that device, there's some evidence that shows that it can, it can change flow dynamics down the leg because it, part of the device is kind of protruding into the, the lumen of mm-hmm. the artery. And so it changes the flow a little bit. And when it does that, it could create this pooling up of blood and that can create this situation where atherosclerosis can form. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, I, you know, two months after that happened, all of a sudden I was walking on a treadmill and my leg is killing me. And I was like, what's going on? You know, I'm, I'm only, I'm not that old, you know, like, so anyways, i had, I eventually found out that I had decreased blood flow because I had developed atherosclerosis in the, in the distal femoral artery, um, in my thigh. And so that was restricting blood flow to my lower leg and it was causing pain. I couldn't run. I couldn't play soccer. I couldn't, uh, I could barely walk sometimes. And so I developed this plan of things to do based on lots of the things we just talked about. And a year later, uh, well, so the first test showed that it was somewhere from 70 to 99% blocked that artery stenosed or narrowed. Um, and then a year later did a follow-up scan after I was doing all this stuff. And it said it was zero to 50% blocked. And I was like, sweet, it's getting better. And my vascular surgeon was just like, well, we usually don't see these things get better. So we can't really say it's getting better. And I was like, what are you talking about? You just saw it. She went, she came back and she tested it twice. Mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that it was the right, what she found was right. And then, yeah, just last or just, uh, Tuesday, uh, and today's Thursday. Um, I, uh, uh I went for the t- scan again. It's been a year and there's no evidence about those grosses in my leg. Amazing. And the guy, again, he said, he said, well, it's getting better, I guess. And I was just like, Dude, it was, it's completely <laughs> reversed from what it was. So, so yes, I would say now, once things have calcified, maybe that's a bit harder, but I can't say that I haven't seen people decrease their CAC scores. I, I have definitely encountered people who have done that. Um, so, so yes, yes, I think that is possible. Perfect. Where can uh, people find your book? Uh, it's on Amazon. If people don't want to use Amazon, they can go to the publisher's website, which is Chelsea Green. Uh, I think it's also on like Barnes & Noble's website. I think so people can find it anywhere. They'll go to my website, which is resourceyourhealth.com. There's links to it there. Um, my Instagram, which is, uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Um, uh, they can, uh, they can find links to it there as well. Excellent. 
Well, thank you for joining us today. We truly appreciate it. Um, I know I have geeked out uh, tremendously, you know, after reading the book and then hearing it firsthand again. Um, I thoroughly appreciate your time um, and can't wait to have you back. Yeah, man, I'd be happy to be back. Thanks for having me, guys. Before we wrap up, we want to take a minute to talk about the Council on Nutrition. I've been a member of the Council for five years now, and we've actually been published in their peer-reviewed journal, Nutritional Perspectives. The symposium that they put on is one of my favorite things to attend each year, and it's a great asset for getting my continuing education credits, meeting other professionals, and it's great for students and new practitioners like Drew. The Council on Nutrition is available to everybody from practitioners to our listeners and patients. You can find more information about joining and getting access to the annual symposium, publications, events, and more at www.councilonnutrition.com. This episode has also been brought to you in part by Iowa Performance Institute. Is starting a new workout routine overwhelming to you? Looking to make your workouts more efficient? Get the most out of your workouts with Iowa Performance Institute's personalized fitness planning. Our team of experts will create a program that's tailored to your body and goals so you can achieve the results you want. Whether you're looking to build muscle, lose weight, or improve athletic performance, we have the knowledge and experience to help you succeed. With our adaptive online practice and cutting-edge training techniques, you'll be on your way to a healthier, happier you in no time. Invest in your health and schedule your free consultation today at performanceiowa.com. James, I can't believe how informative that podcast episode was. I mean, just from my limited experience um, and study of nutrition in the heart, it sounds like everything that we've been taught and that we know is not entirely true. True. That was fascinating. I'm still geeking out if you can't tell. You know, I thought I had a good understanding of the heart, you know, having worked in EMS, working as a paramedic, seeing the you know, patients we were taking in, seeing heart attacks. But this comes into question, you know, what I really know. Like, was I taught the correct stuff in grad school or did we miss a section? Like we just, it's almost like we just missed a bunch of evidence and data and just decided, eh, this is what we'll teach everyone. And I think that's kind of, maybe... This is, you know, you were talking to me the other day about how they want to start taking anatomy and physiology out of med school. Maybe this is, is something like that. You know, it wasn't the utmost importance, so they didn't dive into it. But I mean, man, it's it's pretty crazy. But I mean, you know, I'm I'm blown away with the information. And I'm also sure that there are a lot of people out there that are just like me and were overwhelmed with new information and also probably got lost at some point. Could you you know, reiterate what you thought were the main takeaways from today. And, and, you know, rightfully so, Um, you know, today's topic is definitely, it's new. And so like I tell a lot of students in class, it's not that the content is hard. It's just that it's new. And when there's new content, it just seems overwhelming. So, you know, for me, I'm going to go back and listen to that audio book again. So for the listeners, you know, Dr. Hussey was talking about his book. Definitely go check it out. Um, I'm going to listen to it again, probably on my way home um, this week. The fourth phase flow was really fascinating to me. I was really glad we got to you know, take a deep dive because I understand that a little bit better now. But even that concept is definitely something that I'm going to you know, actually jump into the actual research for. But you know, to answer your question, man, there were a lot of takeaways. I'll, I'll narrow it down to four for us. So for the listeners, there's four big takeaways. You know, if you want to go back and listen to the podcast, I'd absolutely recommend it. Um, cholesterol and LDL likely isn't the issue. This I think is, you know, for a lot of our listeners, probably something they can wrap their head around pretty easy. Um, it's something that obviously our nutrition students, my students, I talk about cholesterol, you know, the cholesterol we eat has very little impact and LDL likely isn't the issue. Um, so that's one, I would say two, really looking at oxidative stress and inflammation as being the big culprits, but not getting so focused on oxidative stress and inflammation just to treat heart disease. You know, I think like Dr. Uh, Hussey was saying, we can order labs, we can do all this stuff. Um, but it's really uh, just address those. If you address those two things, you're not only going to be affecting heart disease, you're going to be affecting numerous other chronic conditions. Um, so three, 
I would say don't focus just on heart disease. Um, you know, as a provider, I love running labs. I want to know what's going on. I want to try and find that. Um, but as a provider, it's not necessarily the labs, um, you know, that we're currently running. So, you know, a person comes in, wants to see how their heart health is. It's an, it's a cholesterol panel. It's a L, um, um, a lipid panel is what I'll order from, you know, LabCorp, wherever I'm, wherever I'm going from. So I think we might be ordering the wrong ones. You know, I don't know many providers focusing on the insulin or focusing on uh, some of the other labs that he's talking about. And then for number four, for our listeners as a takeaway, I'm going to go with focus on the root cause. That is something that it's, it's what we try and do at Iowa Performance, right? Whenever we're, we're talking with a new client, it's stop looking at the symptoms. The symptoms are simply a byproduct of what is underlying underneath. And so if we can focus on the underlying issue, I think that's that's really going to be um, most beneficial for clients, patients, providers, everybody. Yeah, I mean, you know, my biggest takeaway was, you know, I was shocked to hear his take on endurance training. You know, he say, says he takes a lot of heat from it. But, you know, if you really think about it, it's pretty consistent with, you know, most of the providers that we've talked to and what they're saying. Short, high-intensity exercise, especially resistance training, you know, staying strong, keeping um, you know, muscle mass is, you know, proving to be the best training for health. No, oh, absolutely. And, you know, for the listeners at home who, who might be thinking, wow, you know, all of this stuff that, that Dr. Hussey was saying, like some of it might seem out there. They've never heard of some stuff. Um, you know, I can tell you it's all back. Like he is citing a lot of research and a lot of evidence. So to really find those articles, right, dive into the book. And so I'll say that if you want to learn more about any of the products or resources mentioned in today's podcast, make sure that you check the show notes for links. Drew, I hope you have a great week. Looking forward to the next recording. I'm sure it's going to be just as fun and exciting as this one. Oh, yeah, this one was great. And, you know, I'm excited for you know more to come. So, you know, remember new podcast episodes will be released weekly and we'll drop on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more every Monday. A special behind the scenes clip shared on our social channels throughout the week. We appreciate everyone tuning in today. This has been a Nutrition on a Mission, a podcast from the ACA Council on Nutrition. Make sure you're following us at uh, Nutrition on a Mission Pod on Instagram and follow Drew and myself also on Instagram at Iowa Performance Institute for updates on our guest and episode releases. Take care. The views and comments expressed are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of the ACA Council on Nutrition or the American Chiropractic Association.